Welcome to Pitch Deck, the podcast where startup founders pitch their business to investor angels or established mentors. We provide constructive feedback on both the business and the pitch itself. I'm your host, Nick Telson, and let's jump straight into the pitch studio and meet today's guests. So I'm delighted to welcome in this episode on my side of the table, Alex McDonald. Alex started his career in turnaround, acquiring, reorganizing and growing companies in challenging situations for an American private equity group. He spent five years working all over the world and was based everywhere from Europe to Mexico to Asia. Alex teamed up with his childhood friend to found digital concierge service Velocity Black back in 2014. Velocity Black is now a Series C stage company servicing customers in 70 countries around the world and has been amazingly one of the top three fastest growing companies in the UK in the past two years. Alex made his first angel investment five years ago, which very fortunate for him, had a successful exit last year for a 26 times return, um, which he's now reinvesting into early stage tech companies. He currently has eight startups in his portfolio and is actively seeking to invest in pre-seed and seed stage businesses in the UK and US with a particular focus on marketplaces. So welcome to Pitch Deck, Alex. Thanks, Nick, for that intro. Great to be joining you. Delighted to have you. So before we go into the pitch studio, I'm just going to ask you a few questions. So do you have any sort of verticals uh, apart from marketplaces that because of the coronavirus you're more interested in or has your thesis stayed pretty regular? My, well, my, my core thesis has stayed pretty much the same as it was prior to coronavirus. We have seen I think certain verticals, which have, you know, we've seen huge transformation in growth rates in the past six months. Um, I think everyone's seen that chart from one of the banks showing how we've had 10 years of e-commerce growth in, in the space of six months. Um, so naturally, I have, have shown some interest in other areas, but my core focus, the area I have a background in, uh, some expertise from an investment perspective, and also from an operating perspective, uh, is in marketplaces. Um, and I tend to tend to stick to what I know, unless, you know, I do have some people who invest with me. And in some of those situations, um, as with you, actually, if there are people who have more knowledge in, in certain industries or verticals um, and they are very strongly uh, advising a particular for me to look at a particular startup, uh, I'll definitely take a look. But yeah, marketplace is still still where I focus the vast majority of my time, at least from an investment perspective. And I personally get sent a lot of decks in obviously hospitality nightlife as I, I previously founded Design My Night, which makes me even more cynical of those decks because I know the industry inside out and know how hard it is and, and almost makes me more wary to invest in that area, strangely. Do you find the same that people send you decks in a similar space to Velocity Black? And what's your normal take on that? Yeah, I actually, I actually share some of that uh, cynicism that you have. So we've, I've received a, a number of decks for similar uh, type businesses, and particularly in different geographies. Um, some in, in geographies that we don't necessarily operate in yet. And you know, I, I look back on on our journey, and whilst everything looks uh, shiny and positive from the outside, I know how challenging it's been for us to get to where we are today. And knowing all of those hurdles that we had to overcome 
whether it be on the customer acquisition side, whether it be on the investment side, whether it be on, on working with partnerships with hospitality venues, with luxury brands. I am similarly, yeah, I would say uh, cynical uh, on a lot of those decks. And I do find it actually harder to, to get you know uh, as excited as I do about other marketplace businesses, which are not necessarily uh, in the specific space that my company operates in. And you obviously get sent a lot and we're quite active together as angel investors as well. So, you know, we, we sort of share deal flow. And um, for you uh, that gets, gets to see a lot of decks, what's the one thing that you love to see in a pitch deck? And what's the one thing you hate to see in a pitch deck? That's a very good question. In terms of what I love to see, and typically this can come from, you know, a pitch deck normally comes before a meeting. Uh, and particularly nowadays, um, certainly comes before a meeting. Um, but what I really love to see, and, and as I invest at a very early stage, sometimes even before a product is launched or is live, what I really love to see is, is a summary of recent progress, milestones and achievements that have happened in recent months. And you know, certainly after I meet a founder or after I have that first call, that is something that I, I monitor actively. You know, people who are resourceful, people who are um, making progress and generating results, even when they have very little resource available to them in terms of funding or team, that is generally, there's a very high correlation in, in my experience um, of people who are resourceful with founders who end up being successful and, and growing their businesses and, and eventually exiting them. So looking for if, if there's a slide in the deck which shows some very strong milestones, ideally with some data attached to it, whether that be you know revenue, whether that be hires that have been made, um, whether that be you know uh, progress even from an, uh, an investment uh, front, um, those are things which which give an indicator to me about you know how proactive uh, this founder is going to be, how quickly they're going to be able to make progress in the future, perhaps when they have a lot more resource available to them. So that's certainly one thing I love to see. Um, in terms of things I don't like to see, or, or I, I wouldn't say I, I hate anything that I've seen in an investment deck. I think that's a strong, very strong word. But um, <laughs> um, but I think, you know, I found similarly, in fact, I think it was one of your recent guests on another podcast said this, and I 100% agree with it. When the purpose really of a deck, particularly at a pre-seed, seed, and series A stage, is normally to get a meeting. It's normally to have uh, organize a call or get, get in front of that investor in person. And in order to do that, you know, I firmly believe in the phrase, you know, there's no, there's no romance without mystery. Um, and trying to keep things succinct, trying to keep it short, and to the point is really important. You don't need to explain your entire business in the deck. You don't need to answer every potential question an investor has in that deck that you're sending out to them. Your goal is really to, to get them intrigued, get them interested, and, and to try and arrange a, a meeting and, and a call where no doubt they're going to have a lot more detailed questions and you should be prepared to answer those. Um, so yeah, one thing I certainly would dislike are really long decks, you know, too much text, trying to answer every potential question you might have. And, you know, for me, certainly that, that puts me off. I tend to stop reading. Um, I, I, you know, I think I've seen a, a stat that our, our attention spans are shorter now than they've ever been in, in human history. Um, and, um, I certainly cannot read through 50 page decks with paragraphs of text on each slide. You know, I'm looking to, to validate an idea 
um, to validate the team that are involved in it. If that's there, as well as some good indicators and recent progress, then you know I'm, I'm happy to jump on a call or meet, ideally meet that founder in person to take it to the next step. Yeah, as you said, I think that is definitely probably the the, the most popular answer that I've uh, that angel investors have said, and should be probably the main eye opener for founders listening uh, putting together their pitch deck. Worried that you haven't squeezed every ounce of information about the business into the pitch deck, but as you say, when you're receiving lots and lots of pitch decks, you're really flicking through it to see something that piques your interest rather than digging into all the detail. Absolutely, yeah. Perfect. So without further ado, let's jump into the pitch studio and meet today's founder. So I'm delighted to welcome Ben from a company called We Coffee to Pitch Deck. Hi, Nick. Delighted to be here. Thank you. Delighted to have you too. So the floor is now yours. So we are We Coffee and we are here to try and allow anyone to work from anywhere. There's been a huge trend and increase over the last few years in remote working and this has only been accelerated over the coronavirus period. You can see companies like Admiral and VP announcing new working strategies with flexible and hybrid working policies. What does this hybrid working policy mean? Well, it means employers will be demanding remote working and hybrid and flexible solutions from their office space providers. The workforce will be looking for affordable working solutions that are local to them, avoiding painful commutes and resisting or moving away from permanent working from home that can often be unsatisfactory and lead to loneliness and isolation. There's also spaces all over the UK and the world that are underutilized, whether it's in hospitality and hotels, cafes, restaurants, or co-working spaces even, that could be optimized to provide a solution for people. So what we've done at We Coffee is make a membership for individuals and companies that provide a network of free and unique workspaces that they can go and access for meeting rooms, day passes, hourly passes, and on demand. We provide a community that they can collaborate with to meet with online or in our workspaces, exchanging services, socializing and co-working together. We provide weekly events to our members that they can upskill and grow, as well as network with each other, both online and in real life. As with any sort of members community, we provide exclusive offers that help them run their business and maintain their work-life balance. In terms of traction in the market, we launched in January 2019, where we launched out to venues and by February 2019 had launched consumers. We ran a free tier in market with a commission model for the first year, switching to a membership model in November 2019. We now boast around 2,000 members across London, the most booked service of our type, a 10% conversion ratio of people coming into our website and around a £4,500 monthly recurring revenue starting at zero in January this year, effectively. We also went through the lockdown period and we closed all of our workspaces across London, Manchester and Bristol. But what we did do was prove that we were a real membership community by enhancing our online offers through events and an online community. We even managed to increase the price of our memberships and sign up new members during a lockdown period. In terms of why anyone should care from an investment opportunity, 
Well, there's around 1.5 billion people working in a service sector in laptop-based jobs globally. If each of those persons is spending only £2 a day on their working life, their commutes, their coffees, their workspace, that's a $660 billion value pool. How do we run as a business? Well, we have what we call a per-region business model. We look at this as a conservative growth model that we could be signing up around 25,000 members on our premium membership service in a city like London. We would have an average membership of £3.33 across our premium and essential, leading to an annual recurring revenue of £1 million per city around the size of London. However, today we're achieving an average membership of closer to £9 above our aggressive growth model. And if we took a 10% share of all the people who were working in laptop-based jobs, that would be £50 million annual recurring revenue per city. This is purely based off membership models. And like any good business, we have other revenue streams. We look at paid premium plans for venues, partnership lead generation, booking commissions, events and sponsorship. In terms of our regional growth model, we've started off in London and we're piloting in Manchester and Bristol as we speak. And you can go and try and book those venues now. As we go into phase two, post our next raise, we will spread across the UK and test pilots in our first European cities. And by phase three, we would spread out to the US and more cities across Europe. By phase four, we'd hope to cover 20 regions and a billion annual recurring revenue. Eventually, we would hope to move globally, achieving somewhere between a 60 and $100 billion annual recurring revenue. Our pricing model is really simple. We want to be flexible and accessible to anyone to work from anywhere. So we start with an essential plan that's £25 a year. You can access unlimited free workspaces in our online community. Our most popular membership, though, where 80% of people go today is our premium membership. That gives you the free events, the premium offers for all of our members and partner perks, as well as exclusive offers and meeting rooms, and even a free coffee every time you turn up in one of our workspaces. We also offer this to enterprise and we have accounts with employees from Trustpilot, Deliveroo, Accenture, Shell and ASOS who have all been using it as a team level so you can meet and book with your team and manage it from a central administration account. In terms of competitors, it is a competitive landscape out there. And what we do to differentiate ourselves is really put the value into the community. Where this is proven is we're outbooking our competition in London 50 to 1 and we've had less financing than everybody else and less time in the market, yet have the most traction, proving that our strategy today of valuing our members and our community is the right direction to go. In terms of what our members say, I just encourage you to go over to Google, Google We Coffee, read the reviews, and you will see we have five-star reviews from local Google guides, from all of our members, and some great support. In terms of investment, we're currently seeking to raise £150,000 at a £2 million pre-money valuation, including a 10% share pool. And what we will do with this is achieve a £10,000 annual recurring revenue to take us into our next round. And we will only need around 450 to 500 premium members to achieve this, currently sitting at 300 premium members. We will spend some of that money to re-platform and move away from our existing tech stack to go on something far more modern, allowing us to incorporate artificial intelligence and continue to ensure that the right members meet each other, making the right connections in the right places. In terms of comparable businesses, there's uh, another service in London that is running. They have 1,200 members, a £5 million valuation and less traction in market than us. As for the team, I started off as a freelancer 
predominantly working in the automotive sector as an engineer, which is why we heavily supported the freelance community as our early audience to approach. I then moved into management consulting in a digital innovation sector, launching transport digital services and automating processes in the manufacturing industry. That's where I met my co-founder, Arno Mardigan. We worked together to launch WeCoffee for the first year, and we brought in a freelancer who helps us generate new leads across new venues. We've brought in a second team member very recently as we've been scaling massively out of COVID, who's helping us with community management events and customer support. We have a great investor team as well from our previous round where we raised £127,000 last year. One of them is a CTO at ING Bank providing technical support. And we have other investors who come from more of a background in corporate M&A or angel investing to support us on our growth strategy. That's everything from us. Thank you so much for listening. And I'm open to any questions from you guys. Perfect. Thanks very much for that, Ben. Before um, I unleash Alex on you, uh, I'm just going to ask a couple of questions. Um, so when did you and how did you have that light bulb moment to set up We Coffee? And what was the moment when you decided to leave your jobs and actually go full time? So the light bulb moment actually was my co-founder. He was the one who was traveling around across Europe doing M&A deals into the digital sector for mobility and transport services. And he found himself working from substandard places like Starbucks or Costa Coffee or a McDonald's or even his hotel room and couldn't find a plug. It was too loud. The Wi-Fi wasn't reliable enough. People were pestering him to buy things. And he was just fed up. And he wanted to open a network of venues that we could provide accessible co-working to anyone at an affordable and on-demand price. He came to me with the idea. I was working on a similar project at BP in the sense of a marketplace that was using underutilized car workshops. And I thought there was a good synergy between the two concepts. And that's where We Coffee was born from. Um, obviously, you both have previous jobs. So it's interesting for other founders to hear did you hit a particular milestone or did you set yourself a goal that made you think, okay, we're now ready to jack our jobs in and go on this full time? Yeah, we did actually. So uh, when we've been launching digital services internally, I'd always preached to try and get as much early traction and even pre-sales as humanly possible. So we did what lots of startups do nowadays and we put out some adverts for some pre-signups and pre-subscription we got to a thousand in a week and that was the trigger for us to go off and do this. I wasn't too sure on the concept in the initial phase and I'd gone off and had literally walked around Starbucks and Costa Coffees and found people working and showed them some early models of something that we built of the first few sort of dummy pages and the same with venues just to understand whether they would sign up and try and get them to sign up on the spot to the newsletter or to the website as a venue and just understand that people would use it and even what those early features and price points should be. Perfect. Thanks for that. So, Alex, um, over to you if you want to ask some initial questions. Thanks, Nick. Ben, so I guess my, my first question is really around progress, commercial progress today. On the one side, you're trying to sign up subscribers. On the other side, you're trying to sign up venues. Can you talk me through how that's gone, I guess, particularly this year, uh, and also how that relates to revenue? Yeah, uh, of course. So the membership to revenue is very easy in the sense that you can now see that we have 
£3.33 is our sort of average membership that we target. We're running at about £9 at the moment, so much higher because a higher percentage of people are going for our premium membership than the essential, which just wasn't forecast in our business plan, if I'm honest. Some of these things you test and find out as you go. So you can assume with the number of members that we have in the, in the base at the moment, about 1,800 members, a large proportion came from a historic free tier. We would always guarantee them access at Essential. So about a third of those members are paying a £9. Of the 1,800 are paying a £9 average membership fee at the moment on that side. For signing up venues, it's a marketplace. We're very careful to ensure that if we say it's a workspace and it's a good quality workspace, that it will be. And that means we curate it. So we will need to test every venue. We try and handpick venues. If they register directly online, we want to go and validate them. So we do this ourselves. We also use some of our community to do secret customer testing as well to go and validate those venues. What it means is we're not launching at a huge, huge scale. So we focused on London. We're about 120 venues across London that's taken us about a year and a half to get to 120 venues. We have a lot of latent inventory from partners that we could launch in other parts of the UK, but we do this on a balanced basis, matching supply and demand so that a venue doesn't launch with us, forget about the service six months later because no customer has arrived because we haven't got the budget to advertise in that location yet. We call it a nail it, scale it model. Uh, We sign up about 90% of co-working spaces and between 10 and 30% of hospitality venues. Interesting. And on on the pricing side, I've noticed that your, you know, even your entry tier is paid and you obviously have a premium tier, which is more expensive. But from what I understand in in your space with particularly in uh, other geographies, a lot of the other businesses work on a freemium model. So they have their entry tier, which is free, and then they charge a, a monthly fee for the premium tier. Why did you decide to charge for that entry level tier? So we actually came at the market with totally free model, only based off commissions, much more like a booking platform. And we're providing bigger discounts than any of the competitors who were charging monthly subscriptions. And we launched with a no subscription model. The problem we faced was people loved it, but trying to get new people to sign up, they always asked us what the catch was. Why were they getting a free coffee or 10% off in a venue and they weren't paying anything? And we'd try and explain, but it was a very hard problem to get over, actually. So what we did was go out and negotiate with all the venues that we would drop the commission. We wanted much bigger discounts and better perks for our members, and we would move to a subscription model. And we did this, and we were freemium, so the initial tier was free. And in lockdown, what happened was we wanted to look at how we could make the business survive without a single venue being open. And this is when we said, okay, what we're going to do is enhance all of our online offers. We're really going to focus on the community, the membership basis, the interactions that people have with each other and the value that's brought out of this. We asked our members, would you be happy to pay? They said yes. We removed the free tier and our traction significantly increased. So we have maintained it. That's very interesting. So by adding a a price for that entry tier, you actually saw an increase in demand. Yeah, and quality of member who joined and quality of community interaction as well, re-emphasizing in a sort of virtuous cycle the value of the membership. Amazing. And on the venue side, you've got you said you had three three predominant groups of, of venues that you work with. You have the cafes and restaurants, then you have the hotels, and then you have the co-working spaces. I can really see the value proposition for cafes, restaurants, and hotels of them 
giving you their underutilized space and particularly during hours which are typically not busy for them. But with the co-working spaces, how have you found signing them up? It sounds like uh, it's, it's been more challenging from some of the numbers that you shared. What's the value proposition to them behind signing up to your platform? So uh, sorry if it was confusing earlier. We sign up 90% of co-working spaces we speak to. So they almost all join ah. us. They almost always have some underutilized inventory. I'd say it's becoming more and more competitive in the last few years in that space. So previously, I'd say we worked to running maybe at 70 or 80% occupancy in their busy ones and maybe has dropped to about 40% pre-COVID and now will be absolutely obliterated. What we have done is come in and find a way that they can do day passes that's really accessible, that they can promote out to high quality members that bring community spirit into their venues often as well. So we provide a really strong value proposition to them to raise new awareness. And we don't want to charge any commission. I don't want to send an invoice every single month like Hubble does. And it's a pain. It's an administration issue. We don't do this. We just want a discount for our members to come and use your space if they use it on an on-demand and flexible basis. Fantastic. And in terms of the, I guess, the unit economics of the business at the moment, how much does it cost you to acquire a subscriber? And what are your main channels for doing that? And similarly, on the venue side, how much is it costing you to acquire a venue onto the platform? And, and is that mainly through going in in person and having those meetings or are there other channels with which you're signing up venues? So in terms of cost of customer acquisition, I'm slightly apprehensive in a competitive market to deliver on my cost of customer acquisition. It's around 10% of my lifetime value. In terms of channels, we are word of mouth and referrals is a big mechanism for us based as a community group and has ever more importance going forward. We've got some very interesting sort of growth hacks to look at going forward to encourage that referral schemes. But historically, I've used a lot of search and SEO. I built a very strong SEO strategy that my competitors are abundantly aware of and can't get on top of which I really value. And and we use our community to even support us in this area as well. So a lot of organic growth, some paid ads up until where we are now and a lot of referrals. Great. And on the venue side, I guess, particularly with the hospitality type venues, have you found any challenges around the, you know, providing a quality workspace? Have you had any issues, for example, with Wi-Fi or with those cafes not ending up being a, I guess, a suitable venue for people to go and work from? Absolutely. I'm not going to do it. This does happen occasionally. So we have one venue recently, very, very popular, and they had some building works in the area and it took down the O2 network in the area across the O2 Wi-Fi on and off intermittently for about a two week period. What we do is we're incredibly responsive as a team. We constantly work from our workspaces and we have our members providing us feedback. The second we know about it, we put a notification on the listing uh, or remove the listing for the temporary period of time. We work with the supplier to ensure that the workspace is suitable again. And we instantly contact our members. I cannot emphasize enough that one of the differentiators between us and our competitors and one of the things that made me see there was a huge room in the market to go in and do this and do it better was their service and their awareness in venues and their care of your experience. And we work incredibly hard to really reduce that and make sure that you're aware as fast as possible and put you into another workspace five minutes around the corner. 
you talk about scale and you know you're talking about big figures when you go global it, it feels like it's very hands-on at the moment with you and your co-founders you're very easily able to curate everything look after your members very closely so obviously when you scale across the uk europe and the world how do you see this attention to detail and curation being able to be taken forward We've got a few mechanisms to do this through. So artificial intelligence is something we have not built into the business and used at all. And I I know a bit about Velocity Black and I'm sure Alex will appreciate the benefits it's bringing into his business. And I would like to use the same for our business going forwards as fundamental data sets that we're picking up that are incredibly useful. Uh, We're in hospitality venues. We can have Wi-Fi connection in there. We can have cameras. We can have all sorts of things of monitors, sensors, providing information back, even if it's coming actually from our members who are in and connected and participating in those venues. The other mechanism that is less technology driven, and I like having solutions that aren't always reliant on technology, is using the sort of Google systems of local guides. I love the idea that one day we work from anywhere. You know, we could invite our hundred or thousand best members to an amazing event on a private island to come and co-work and remote work and have great workshops, how the venues are going, how they're working, how to improve and ensuring that that's fed back and improves the service constantly. If I'm honest, I really don't like the name now. It's obviously We Coffee and it's not just about coffee and cafes. And looking at your website and brand, it feels a bit sort of late 90s for what's meant to be like the future of work. So have you, you know, has that come up? Have you got plans to address that? Yeah, I'm glad you said that, Nick. So we do. We have a new brand. It will be deploying at the end of next month. I can reveal here. People are starting to become aware as our campaign goes into market. We will be called Othership because we are another type of membership. It will provide you mentorship. It will provide you friendship. It will provide you all the different ships from our other type of membership. That's oh, good timing then. <laughs> well answered question. Um, Alex, have you got any others? Yeah, I guess I've got one question I ask every founder, which is what keeps you up at night, Ben? And you know, obviously, from a, a professional perspective, what what is what keeps you up, or what's what worries you in the evenings about your business? Is it competition? Is it um, you know uh, growth? Uh, is it challenges around growth? Is it investment? What are the things which um, keep your brain worrying at, at midnight? I'm probably working out which one of all of the ones you said, plus a million others, is the most important one <laughs> to be to be worrying about. I think you have all the worries go through your head. We're in the middle of an investment round at the moment. The most important thing to me is I know we have traction. I know we have a business that works. I know we add value to people's lives because they tell us every day. And I have data points or, or proof for all of these The thing that scares me right now is keeping my team employed and going into next year and achieving the growth that we should and making sure that we're the ones who are setting what the future of work is going to look like. And it isn't from a company that is not going to democratize and allow anyone to work from anywhere. I've got another question for you. Just thinking, I'm just thinking out loud about the customer experience. Could there be a case where... If people are going to be working from home a lot more, which obviously looks like it could be very good for you guys, is there a case that actually if I live in, I don't know, let's just say Highbury or I live in Bromley, that I I, I find, even maybe I find it with Wee Coffee or other ship, that 
a great local cafe or a great local pub that actually I then just go there every day that I don't need your membership because I found the local haunt that I can use. Watch this space, Nick, and I will tell you when we have a interesting product for this launching in a couple of weeks for one of our venues as a pilot. Okay, I'll, I, I, I think I see where you're going. We'll see if I'm see if I'm right on that one. Um, I think that's all my questions. Have you got any more, Alex? No, I, I think it's. Um, well, I guess we'll talk about our summary afterwards. But um, you know, Ben, I think it's a very very interesting business. Um, great timing. Timing's the most important thing, I think. And you've certainly hit it on the head, um, launching or at least growing this this year. So sounds like, uh, you know, a very interesting uh, year ahead for you. Thank you, Alex. I really appreciate that. So yeah, thanks very much, Ben. A really good pitch. And um, we'll leave you here. And Alex and myself will discuss it further outside the pitch studio. But thanks for joining us. Amazing. Thank you, Nick. I can't wait to hear back the comments on the bit I won't hear. So, Alex, it's just you and I outside the pitch studio, having listened to Ben's pitch. Um, so, I'll let you kick off. What's your initial thoughts? Yeah. So, I, I mean, to be honest, when I, you know, having seen the deck prior to the to the pitch, I came in maybe a, a little bit cold on the idea, but I'm, I've come out the other side of the pitch much, much warmer. I like Ben. I think he has the right uh, experience, and he had really good answers to some of the more detailed questions. I think the timing is, you know, I would say perfect. This year, we've COVID has obviously accelerated uh, a number of trends, and one of which is certainly remote working or hybrid remote working. Um, so that is certainly, you know, the time is right for this. In terms of the product, I think it's a a very interesting concept, and you know, I think the, the things I like about the product are. Number one is sort of focus on service. I, I really do believe that good customer service these days can be a, a differentiator and a strong enough differentiator to win business versus the competition. I love the community aspect. Um, at Velocity Black, we've invested a lot in, in building out a community as, as much as a service. And that can have really good impact on both your cost of acquiring new members or new users um, and also on the lifetime value and, and retention. So I like uh, I like the the community aspect of it. From a you know in terms of where I see the challenges, this is you know due to the fact that the timing is perfect for this. You know there are certainly there's a lot of competition out there, and you know some of it is is direct competition, some of it is indirect. It's a I guess it's a whole sector which has been been through a a year which is probably the most challenging year the sort of co-working or remote working sector has ever faced and that has you know led to a whole range of new services and um, and products launching of which you know we coffee or other ship um is one of many and when you look at marketplace businesses, at least what I found, and I know you found as well to a certain extent with, with Design My Night, the speed to market is important, not necessarily being first to market, but certainly being first to critical mass is key. And if you are the first to critical mass within a, a certain segment of the marketplace, it has a massive positive impact on, on all of your metrics. 
your cost of acquiring users is significantly lower. You know, I, I read once that when Just Eat was the number one sort of food delivery marketplace in the UK, their cost of acquiring a customer was three times less than the number two player uh, in, in the marketplace. So it has massive positive impacts on your, on your unique economics, um, also on retention rates. And I feel that, you know, that they've certainly had a, a very strong year in terms of growing, particularly in recent months since office spaces reopened. But there are other competitors out there who I think on some metrics may, may have more scale already. And so that will be certainly an uphill battle trying to compete. So that would be the biggest challenge that I think uh, Ben faces. I think one thing that's sort of niggling at me is, yes, we're moving to this flexi working, should we call it? And I, I asked a question in the pitch and he said he's coming up with a product, but do people move around that much? So if I am going to be allowed to work from home, let's say three days a week from my company, am I going to be wanting to be able to pop into lots of different working spaces across London or am I going to find a working space or a cafe just in my locale and just work there and not have to sign up to something? Like, you know, is this actually, as you say, when Corona dies down, going to be back towards the freelancer market where people might be moving around for meetings more um, versus this huge tailwind of, you know, companies allowing people to work from home. I'm, 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 I'm still not entirely sure on that. That's a really good point. Yeah. I think, so, you know, some of the things which have been tailwinds to them this year might become headwinds next year. And certainly when I think about my team currently, I know that they've been moving around a lot more this year than they would otherwise be um, because they're working fully remotely. And they've been, you know, working at their parents' houses and in some cases, you know, abroad. Um, so there's definitely been a big increase in, in how, how frequently they've been changing their location, which is, you know, positive. But I would probably expect that to uh, return to a more normalized situation next year once the COVID restrictions are eased and once probably we move back to a, a more hybrid model of, you know, in-person, in-office working as well as some remote working. So yeah, that I think that's a really good point. Some of those, I guess, growth drivers this year um, may, may become headwinds next year. I was actually going to ask you, so as someone who's still the owner, founder of a, a large growing company, you know, if I came to you as Ben and said, you know, for three pounds a month per employee, they can get access to the other ship We Coffee platform. As a business owner, do you think that's something you would sign up to? I'm just trying to think they go to ASOS and they go to other brands he mentioned almost as a perk. He's saying it could be a business perk. Do you see that as a perk that you yourself would offer your employees? Uh, that's a very good question. I think it would be the right thing as a perk for many companies. For us at our stage and with the type of business and work that our team do, I don't think it's necessarily something we would offer. And um, the main reason being we deal with a lot of sensitive client uh, information, or at least the majority of our team do, and they have to be in a secure environment working on secured machines uh, without people overhearing them in order to be able to do their work. So so for us, it probably wouldn't be the right option for, for the majority of our roles. Certainly, there are some commercial roles that we have where it, it might make sense as a perk, but I can really see it working for a lot of other companies as a certainly as an employee perk. I think that's a really good route to go down. And I would probably want to dig 
you mentioned community and community has almost become a bit of a buzzword, almost like AI, um, especially in like the D2C world. It's all about community, community. Um, I think if I was to have further chats with Ben, I'd really want to dig on how he's building a community. I think it's very easy to say we are building a community, but how, you know, how is he nurturing that community? How is he engaging with that community? Or is it a case of just putting all these freelancers together and, you know, on a Slack channel or whatever, and, and then building out the community. Um, so I'd probably want to dig a, a lot more on how them as founders are nurturing that community. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's not something which is easy and it's not something, if you want to build a real community, it's, it's something which is quite expensive uh, normally to do as well. So it does require investment. It does require team members focused on that. Obviously we work in the, in the co-working space really were the first to, to pioneer that and invest significantly in that. They have people dedicated to community in their in their co-working spaces. So it's it's certainly something which I think can be a good differentiator, but you do need to invest in it. Uh, you do need to nurture it. And you have to decide what that community stands for, right? Like, you know, a community is only really a community if it's a group of people with a shared interest or a shared passion or a shared you know, some aspect of shared background, which binds them together as a community. And I'm not necessarily sure that he knows what that is yet. If it's, I don't think just freelancers is, is enough um, to, to bind everyone together. You probably need it to be a bit more, uh, a bit deeper than that. So yeah, that would certainly be an, an area to dig into in more detail. That's an excellent point, actually. I hadn't thought of that, that actually, if they're looking to expand it out because of this, the future way of working, that you could have all types of characters, some working at corporate, some freelancers, some working at startups, the, the community then starts to blur. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So you can actually, as you grow and as you expand into completely new sort of acquisition channels for subscribers um, and different interest groups, you can actually dilute the quality of that community, um, which is something you have to be careful of if it's the core part of your value proposition to the customer. And finally, I always touch on valuation. So they're doing four and a half grand monthly recurring revenue. So let's call that 55 grand annual, 150 grand at 2 million. Where's your head at at that valuation? I, I think they're still at, you know, probably luckily for Ben, they're still at the stage where it's, it's very hard to nail down a valuation based on their metrics. I think that they've still got too little data for that to be the basis of their valuation. You know, when I look at the team, the team is still very small. It has limited experience in this space, but Ben is very impressive. He does have very, very good answers. He clearly has researched and, and knows his business very well. Um, so that's certainly something that's going for him. From my perspective, I probably want to dig, you know, a little bit deeper into unit economics before coming to a conclusion on the valuation. And that's purely because the, the space is so competitive, right? And I, I'd really want to know more on both the venue side and, and the user side around customer acquisition costs, et cetera. Um, because typically I found, you know, with marketplace businesses, the most successful marketplace businesses in the world are the ones that have hacked one side of the marketplace in order to sign up users on the other side. And, and that means really you can focus all your marketing and sales efforts as well as all your investment on that one side of the marketplace. So a, a typical example, and the, the biggest example there is, is if you look at OpenTable, you know, who operate in the hospitality space. Alex, you can't mention OpenTable from the founder of Design My Night. Come on. 
Come on. <laughs> you you did a great job in, in digging into and and taking away their market share, certainly within within some of the segments. But they were the original in terms of they looked at this. They had to sign up, you know, obviously consumers to book restaurant tables, and they had to sign up restaurants and they had to sign up the venues. And um, but what they did was, and what was really clever is they focused purely on signing up the restaurants. And they said to the restaurants, "Here's a you know here's a widget you can put on your website, and you can you know consumers could then book through your website uh, your restaurant." And they were gathering all of those user details um, and they were permitted to by the restaurants. And that's how they built out this huge consumer side of the marketplace was purely by harvesting the restaurant's own customers. So whilst that, you know, that was probably could be considered a little bit underhand, but the restaurants agreed to it um, and enabled them to purely focus their initial marketing and sales efforts purely on the restaurant side, which is what really um, enabled them to scale so quickly and use their money so efficiently as they were growing out um and i know that you know you guys use similar techniques at design my night as well initially um and uh, as well as some other players in, in the market and when taking it back to to we coffee you know i think understanding a bit more about how they plan to acquire users how they plan to acquire venues if there are opportunities to to focus on one side of the marketplace and, and use it to hack the other like for example all those hotels or, or restaurants that they might be working with at the moment, would they be willing to market this offering to their customers? You know, is there, are there opportunities to, to utilize their databases to do that? So yeah, I probably want to know a lot more in a very long answer to your question. I probably want to lo- learn a bit more about that before deciding on the valuation. Look, typically at this stage, as, as, you know, as we both have found anywhere from sort of just under a million through to a couple of million can be justified but yeah based purely on the the metrics and the revenue it's it's not justified but taking into account i think the team um you know how impressive ben was um and you know certainly their customer feedback and their service the, you know the really great service that i think uh, they offer through the product you know i think you, you might get there um if you got a bit more detail on the unit economics and how they plan to grow. Yeah, I totally agree with with all of that. That makes um, total sense to me. So I think on that note of agreement, we'll call this episode a day. So it just leaves me to say thank you so much for joining me, Alex. Loved your insight into marketplaces. Um, and, and thanks very much for taking the time to be on the podcast today. Thank you very much for having me, Nick. So it's just me now for the final summary. It's a really, really interesting one because on paper, it ticks a lot of boxes. So timing, massive tick. Founder seems like a tick. Obviously, you'd want to uh, meet or at least speak to Ben's co-founder, Arno, too. Revenue generating tick, happy customers tick. Um, so from that aspect, um, it seems like a bit of a no-brainer. Something nagging in the back of my head when I think about it, one being competitors, it's also going to be a lot more of a competitive landscape, I I think. Um, I can't see them having a free run at this market. There's obviously competitors in the market already, but I, you know, I think I would invariably think that the more are going to come. We saw that design my night. We had some big competitors. We hit the market and then two or three more came out as well. Um, So that will then drive the cost of um, customer acquisition higher. So when they're all bidding on the same keywords and it becomes a lot more competitive, the CAC is going to be higher. So I think that's something I'd want to consider. So I think that's that's the main one for me is, yeah, how viable is 
we coffee or other shit versus the competitive landscape you know do they have enough of a moat around themselves do they have the plans in place to scale and get to market quickly without solely relying on the community i completely agree with alex that i love it if they can get one side of the marketplace to market for them that's the, the best hack in the world for marketplaces now anyone that knows me knows that you know one of my most admired companies is just eat who were the first one in this food delivery space and don't get the plaudits I think they deserve. When you look at their business model, you know, they got restaurants or takeaways, let's say, to say, if you want to order online, you have to use this product that we're giving 20% commission to. It's insane. So if you go into a takeaway to order online, use Just Eat. On the outside of their shops to order online, use Just Eat. Genius, genius, absolute genius. So if Ben can, I don't know, maybe it would have to be some sort of booking element to it, which would allow hotels or pubs to say, to book our co-working space, or did you know we're also a co-working space, book online through We Coffee, um, rather than a drop-in, drop-out, because if it's drop-in, drop-out, the pub could just put up their own tent card saying, did you know we're also a, a, a workspace? They wouldn't need We Coffee. So maybe they might need that sort of booking element, like a free booking, and then they could look at the Just Eat model. So I think that's something to look at as well. Valuation, $2 million, a bit pricey for me. I think, yeah, 50, 60 grand ARR, annual recurring revenue. Alex is right. We'd need to dig a bit deeper on unit economics, but, you know, finger in the air, I was thinking he'd say about one and a half, one point seven. 1.7. So not too far off, but just a tad on the pricey side. But I think Ben was extremely impressive, very competent, answered the questions very clearly, seems to know the market very well. Um, and that's one of the most important things for me when I speak to a founder is that they know the market they're working in like the back of their hand. So if they need to pivot, then they are the right ones to do that because they know what their customers want, but they also know what the other side of the marketplace demands as well. Um, so I think off the back of that, sounds like Alex and definitely myself would take it a step further to speak with Ben. So if you want to check out Ben's company, WeCoffee, head over to wecoffee.io. Um, depending when this podcast airs, um, it might have changed to other ship. So bear that in mind. Um, if you want to check out Alex's company, Velocity Black, that is on velocity.black. And I'm sure he won't mind you finding him on LinkedIn. It's Alex McDonald. And as ever, if you want to check out my startup playground, you can find that on horseplay.ventures. And if you are an investor that is interested to speak to Ben and the team at WeCoffee um, Othership, then drop us a contact on there and we'll put you directly in touch. And similarly, if you are a founder listening who's going to be raising money soon and would like to be on an episode of Pitch Deck, drop us your pitch through Horseplay website too. And finally, as ever, I super appreciate if you could share this with your own community if you like what we're doing here on Pitch Deck. And as I always say, if you could just share it at least with just one person today that you think would get a lot from it, I'd really appreciate it.